and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Lara Corrigan. Welcome to Think Health. Today... Playing team sports was a reflection of Aboriginal culture. It's about you know, having a common goal, teamwork and the collective mentality about the world. Why are Aboriginal athletes so damn good at footy? And... From working as a GP, I tend to prefer to see people who I've seen before. Well, almost everyone. Should you stick with the same doctor? But first... In 2002, when I was pregnant with my second child, my daughter Soraya was stillborn at full term. And from the post-mortem results, we discovered the umbilical cord from the baby, instead of inserting directly into the placenta, which is what normally happens, the cord inserts into the membranes or the bag of waters that surrounds the baby. So there's a section of blood vessels that are unprotected. And in Saray's case, she compressed those and cut off her own blood supply just before she was born. Since the stillbirth of Saraya 15 years ago, Natasha Donnelly has made it her mission to increase awareness about the condition she'd had that wasn't picked up in time to save her daughter. That condition is known as vasopravia. Vasopravia is a rare condition women can experience during pregnancy where the blood vessels that connect the baby's umbilical cord to the mother's placenta are exposed or positioned in a way that makes them vulnerable to rupture. Like in Natasha's case, a baby can reach full term with no issues, but if the baby ruptures or smothers these vessels during labour, it can die in a matter of minutes. Vasoprevia is very rare, and the baby can be delivered safely through a caesarean section if the condition is diagnosed early. Natasha and other women that experienced the condition were interested in finding out more about vasopravia in Australia. So they teamed up with researchers from the University of Technology, Sydney, to produce the world's first national study. Professor for Public Health Elizabeth Sullivan was the lead author of the study. And the aim of that study was really to get what you would think was pretty basic information. We wanted to know how common was vasopravia in um, women giving birth, what were the risk factors, and also what were the outcomes for both the mother and the baby. The study was not only a world first, it was unique because it was driven and funded by people touched by the disease through the International Vasopravia Foundation. Natasha is the vice president. The families around the world, and we're an international organisation, particularly those who went undetected and their babies died during birth, um, they want to make change. They want to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. And because the study was driven by patients, Elizabeth says the researchers felt a special responsibility to them. And I think it's really important to acknowledge and celebrate the generosity and the passion of people who have experienced stillbirth from vasopravia or neonatal deaths and who then take it upon themselves to try and reduce the likelihood of other people having that in the future. 
by funding and supporting a study like this. Over the course of the study, 63 women had confirmed cases of vasopravia. That's an estimated incidence of one in 5,000 pregnancies. Like I told you, it's rare. Of these women, five weren't diagnosed antenatally or prenatally. The words actually mean the same thing, even though they sound like opposites. Unfortunately, two of these undiagnosed women lost their babies. All babies survived when the condition was diagnosed antenatally. What this study contributes to our knowledge about vasopravia is, is the first thing is it gives patients and women and families who are diagnosed with vasopravia evidence on what is the likelihood of a good outcome. I think that's really important to give that reassurance. Secondly, it shows the importance of antenatal screening and how that is associated with the best outcomes. Despite this, in Australia, it's not compulsory, nor is it common standard, to screen for vasopravia. But since 95% of the women in this study who were antenatally diagnosed with vasopravia had presented some of the risk factors, Elizabeth says maybe women who are at risk should be screened for vasopravia as a rule. One of the findings we felt that needed to be considered in the future from the study was whether there needed to be targeted screening. So women who have pre-existing risk factors, such as being older, previous placentation abnormality. Yeah, that means women who have low-lying placentas. Natasha had this. It can be caused by prior miscarriages. Back to Elizabeth. Or use of IVF. And it's thinking smartly about how we can try and prevent it. Because there aren't a lot of preventable causes of stillbirths. And vasopriva is one where... It is possible to prevent it. Natasha goes as far as recommending that all expecting mothers are checked for vasopravia during their routine 20-week scan. We know from plenty of research studies that it's easy to do. It can take 30 seconds just to identify that cord insertion. They're looking for the placenta anyway. They're looking at the location of the placenta in relation to the cervix, and that's about identifying placenta previa, where the placenta is over the cervix or near the cervix. And they look at the cord insertion into the baby, But they're just not routinely looking for the cord insertion into the placenta and it's not difficult to do. She says one of the big problems is that not all medical professionals know about vasopravia because they may only see it once in their careers. So one of the purposes of the study is to raise awareness of the disease within the medical community. Elizabeth again. It's the same with all rare conditions. It's always hard to make everything top of mind when going through pregnancy because there are a lot of rare conditions. But I do think that vasopravia has some unique aspects. One is that um, we know that a caesarean section prevents adverse outcomes. We know that antenatal diagnosis is very important. So I think critically we need to make sure that we have an educated maternity workforce And I suppose one of the most important things from this study is that we actually now have some Australian evidence. The study also found women with vasopravia were more likely to have their water break prematurely than other mothers-to-be. The chances of this happening in the general population is 1 in 50, that's 5-0, and when that happens, generally it just means a premature birth. But for the 1 in 15, that's 1-5, women with vasopravia whose waters burst early it can mean they lose their baby. Natasha says these figures make a case for the early hospitalisation of women with vasopravia. 
If they're in hospital and their membranes do rupture, then they have access immediately to a caesarean section to save their baby. If that were to happen at home or out in the street, they don't have the luxury of time and the difference between life and death is minutes potentially in a ruptured vasoprevia. There wasn't enough evidence in the study to prove that women that were hospitalised early were better off. But Natasha and the International Vasoprevia Foundation recommend hospitalisation at 31 weeks. As a woman who's lost her baby, I can tell you I would have rather been in hospital for four or five weeks and been watched in case, even if the odds of my rupture were 1 in 50 instead of 1 in 15, rather than being at home waiting for something potentially to happen. And she's not alone in feeling this way. Natasha says in a separate study she spoke to other women about it. Women referred to feeling like they were a ticking time bomb, especially those who were at home, because they don't know if they're going to rupture. They don't know what's going to happen. So there's that fear for those who are in hospital being monitored. While it's not very nice to spend that length of time in hospital, they know that if something was going to happen, they're in the best place. The researcher, Elizabeth, and the patient, Natasha, both agree there's an opportunity for more research off the back of this study. There are still questions about who should be tested for vasoprevia, whether it's everyone or just those with risk factors. There's also questions about the benefits of hospitalisation, as well as when is the best time to have a caesarean. Elizabeth again. And there's still not enough information on that in terms of timing because ideally one would like to have a caesarean section as late as possible in the pregnancy to allow the baby to develop as much as possible. But what is clear to Natasha is that if she had been screened for vasopravia, Soraya would probably be alive today. Had it been diagnosed, then I would have had an early caesarean section and she would have been fine, but instead she was born at 39 weeks and six days, perfectly formed with nothing wrong with her. And literally as she engaged and broke my waters, um, she died. of professional AFL and NRL players are Aboriginal. Yet Aboriginal people only represent 3% of the population. So why is it they're so good at sport? Is it something about their bodies or is it their upbringing? Wiradjuri man John Evans is a professor of Indigenous health education at the University of Technology, Sydney. There's a view that Aboriginal people are good because they've become a certain sort of racial characteristics that they're fast, they can jump high and those sorts of things. So they're sort of a one part of the argument, but there's also got to have some things in your environment that make you good. So you can't just be born with these sort of great sort of natural characteristics, but you've got to also have something in the environment that makes you good. So we were interested in the other side of the, the discussion, the sort of nature versus environment type things. We were very much involved in the sort of the nurture part. What were the things in, in their sort of lives that made them really good sports people, especially given that there's so many Indigenous boys now playing in the AFL and the NRL. Why did you think it was important to, to research this subject? Yeah, we wanted to push back against the myth that Aboriginal people are born good and that's why they're good at sport. So we wanted to interrogate that a little bit and try and sort of see what other things are happening in people's lives. 
and also our results came out that you know sport plays a much more important part in Aboriginal communities than just producing elite sports people. So that was one of the other reasons we were interested in doing the research. So it had a, a couple of different layers to it. What kind of role does sport play in Aboriginal and Indigenous communities? It's one of the big things that draws Aboriginal communities together. So, for instance, a good example would be in the first weekend in October each year they had the Aboriginal Rugby League knockout where you'd get you know, 60, 70 teams from around New South Wales playing it. So it's one of the biggest sporting events in Australia, but no one really knows about it. So from that point of view, it, it's a it's an opportunity for people to get together. And it's, it's a really important part of community life. And if you go to small country towns around country, you'll see that Aboriginal people are participating in sport. And without their participation, all those sort of rural competitions would probably fold. So, and it's also one of the, the areas since colonisation that Aboriginal people have had access to, although it's not always been uniform and it often relied on local attitudes towards Aboriginal people, but it has been one of the areas where Aboriginal people have been had access to and became very successful at, even in, in sort of a limited way. And what's the methodology of your research? We interviewed eight Indigenous rugby league players and we interviewed eight AFL players. And so what we did, we basically asked them to tell us their life history. So it was a so like we, we took an oral history from them. So we might ask what were some of the things that enabled them to make it to the NRL or the AFL or who were the major influential people in their lives. So apart from one or two prompt questions, it was all about them telling us their, their history. So what were some of the key findings? Okay, so the first one was these guys come from communities where sport's highly valued. It's a very important cultural life. And for some of them, they even felt that playing team sports was a reflection of Aboriginal culture. It's about you know, having a common goal, teamwork, and the collective mentality about the world. The second thing is that although they specialise in their sports from a very early age, they play a whole range of different sports. So they're not concentrating on one sport from a very early age so some of these guys would play rugby league afl they could box they could run they play basketball and they play a whole range of sports like that and i think that is one of the things that we arrived at that this is the things that makes them extremely skillful they have a broad range of skills which they can then use in their chosen sport when they decide to specialize they've got great problem solving skills they've got great anticipation and we believe that comes from that range of skills that they develop from playing a whole range of different sorts of sports. And the third one, which we think is really important, is that they play a lot of games outside with their friends. So they would play backyard games amongst their, their siblings and their cousins and their wider community, and they would make up games. So they would, they would invent games or they would play games from the resources they had around them. So, you know, they might find like an old Coke bottle, for instance, and they would seal it and they would use that for a football or, or they would invent games and we also think that that's one of the key reasons why these guys become such good footballers because they learn to play in environments that are challenging, they have to problem solve and they have to be inventive. So what surprised you about your findings? One of the things that did surprise us a little bit was one of the things that uh, a lot of these guys struggled with when they came to the AFL and the NRL was that they often they didn't have the physical development that the other players had, so that was something they had to make up. So they were extremely skillful and could do fantastic things on the football ground, but they had to spend a lot of time getting stronger, maybe building up their aerobic base, just generally getting fitter. They had great speed and anticipation, but that was a bit of a challenge for them. Um, yeah, so I think whilst the main outcomes... We sort of had an inkling that that's what they might be, but we were surprised just at how important they were to the development of the players. What 
what's the purpose of this research? Like, what's its application going to be? This spin-off now for elite sport is to try and understand how they can get their developing players in similar situations. So how do you get a young 14 or 15-year-old boy or girl who wants to play in those particular sports exposed to the sorts of game variations that we saw in, in these particular players so how do we get them exposed to you know maybe inventing their own games because I think when we look at the great players in sport you know they're always have great anticipation they can react to situations they're they're creative how do we create those situations back with the emerging players in society the other thing too is that it's also important because we've also got on the other side of the coin kids don't play as much sport as they used to so playing different sports and having fun inventing your own sports could be the key to unlocking how we get a whole bunch of kids from a very young age involved in sports so we don't see the sorts of rise in obesity and type 2 diabetes in kids uh, that we're starting to see today. I feel like you see it a lot in women's sports now as they're getting bigger, like with the women's AFL. A lot of those women didn't grow up playing AFL because there just wasn't the clubs available, but they had backgrounds in soccer or basketball, and that's why they're good AFL players. Well, if you look at the Australian women's sevens team, um, they weren't recruited from a body of women that played sevens because sevens was an established sport for women here in Australia. So they had to go out and actively recruit players from football. They came from rugby league. They came from athletics. They came from a whole range of sports, netball, to make up that side that won a gold medal. So, you know, that's a really good example of players who don't come from a highly specialised background. And I think that's one of the mistakes we're making in sport is that we expect kids to make early decisions about what sport they want to play without thinking about is it detrimental to their long-term development. Professor John Evans from the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Do you see the same doctor every time you need to see a doctor? No. Why? I don't really choose the doctors that I see. I just see anyone that is available. But if I have a specific appointment with a particular one, I go there and I ask for them. So there's some doctors you prefer more than others? No. I know a lot of people have that feeling that, okay, they want to see some particular doctors, but I don't. Yeah. If, if, if you're qualified to see me, I see you. Do you see the same doctor every time you need to see a doctor? Well, yeah, I do, I do, yeah, I do. Why? Because my parents are doctors, so I see them every day. No, I don't see the same doctor every time. Why is that? I, because I don't visit mostly to the hospital because I'm physically fit right now. But uh, to my knowledge, I never saw the same doctor. I don't have any reason to see him. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Why is that? It's just habit, yeah. Um, yeah, usually. Why is that? Because they know you better, I guess, your medical conditions and stuff. Well, pretty much if you go like the same doctor, they know about you, they know about everything about you. So if you go different doctor, they need to look after your back, background and everything. So which is pretty, pretty good if you go the same doctor. Not really. Do you have a regular doctor you see anytime you're sick or need a checkup? I don't. I just Google whoever's nearby. Should you be sticking to the same doctor? Is it better for your health? 
That's what Michael Wright is trying to find out. I'm Michael Wright. I'm a PhD student at the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at UTS. So, Michael, should people stick with the one doctor? It depends. I think that's actually been the basis of my PhD thesis, is trying to understand, is there a benefit from going to the same doctor or going to the same practice, for that matter? Because in Australia, you can do either. You can go and see as many GPs as you like or as many practices as you like. And I'm trying to understand, is in that um, system, what might be the most effective and probably the most cost-effective way to get your health care? And as a medical doctor yourself, you used to be a GP. Did you prefer seeing regular people? Yeah, look, it probably started my interest in this because I sort of know from working as a GP, I, I tend to prefer to see people who I've seen before. Well, almost everyone. But then I find that after I've seen people a couple of times, you feel a bit more comfortable with them. And I, and I kind of feel like I do a better job. But what I don't know, and probably what most health systems don't know, is does it make any difference? Like the fact that I feel a bit better about it, does it actually make any difference to health outcomes for people? So far, what have been some of the benefits you've found of having the same doctor? I've found that there are increased rates of having health screening, having pap smears to detect cervical cancer, and also having mammograms to detect breast cancer and that potentially that is going to lead to improved health outcomes, but that research is sort of still ongoing. The, this idea is what they call it continuity of care, and the idea is that it's care that you get that extends beyond one illness. So say that you've just got a cold and you might go to the doctor once. The idea of continuity of care is that after you've had that one illness, you might go back to the same doctor. What it means is that it considers both the relationship that you might develop, so you trust the doctor, you believe what they say, um, and you might be more likely to follow recommendations, but it's also the information sharing. So I understand you as, you know, and you understand me a bit more if I've got your records and all of those things probably make our decision making better. And other people have found that, but people haven't looked at it in the Australian setting and looked at this idea of continuity of care with a practice. Increasingly, people are getting continuity around a practice. So practices have gotten bigger over the last 10 years, and sometimes it's hard to see the same doctor. But at least if you go back to the same practice, they've got your records and they can look at the information that has been taken down before. And so what I've done is I've had a large group of people and I've categorised them according to whether they've got this continuity of care with a GP, continuity of care with a practice, or whether they've got reduced continuity. And what I've found is that people who have GP continuity or practice continuity are more likely to have those screening tests. You talk about going to the same medical practice and how that's a benefit because they have your records and things like that. As the you know health system gets more and more digitalized, won't that sort of be redundant and everyone can have everybody's files? If, if you would have asked me that question about 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said yes, but in truth, it hasn't changed. So we, every practice has its own medical records. You don't share your records with anyone else or any other practice. And with confidentiality concerns, I think everyone's pretty cautious about, you know, uploading their medical records to the cloud. So until we've got greater confidence in that kind of thing, then I think we probably will be limited to having continuity around a practice. So you say that women you found were more likely to get regular screening tests, like preventative tests, when they saw a regular doctor. What sort of 
health benefit does that have then for them? Well, I think, say, particularly, say, for having mammograms, like the idea of if you have mammograms to detect breast cancer, by engaging in that process, you're more likely to pick up something earlier and at a stage that might be more... Um, available to be treated. Now, I, I haven't been able to analyse sort of longer-term health outcomes about that, but that would be an idea for future research. And have you found that those patients do prefer to see yeah. the same doctor? Yeah, and so this is probably the bit of research that was around before I've started, and the studies are fairly consistent and show that people who have a regular GP or a regular practice are more satisfied with their care. And they also find that doctors working who have regular patients are also more satisfied. And that's been my experience. And how are you hoping to see this research applied? It does have policy implications, fairly wide-reaching, because we're not restricted in how we seek care in Australia. And what I'm finding with my results is that there probably is a benefit from encouraging people to either have GP or practice continuity. But anything that encourages that might limit the freedom of choice that we've got at the moment. And so it's going to be a balance between trying to encourage people to uh, follow the care that is most likely to benefit them, but without limiting their access, because the access which we have now is one of the sort of great advantages of the Australian health system. Michael Wright, PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. And a special thanks to Ellen Liebeter for help with that story. And that's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2SER.com slash thinkhealth. If you have any questions after today's show, go see your regular GP. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on our favourite podcast app. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Lara Corrigan. Jake Morgan will be back next week. It's been a blast. <laughs>